welcome to Montalvo. Thanks for joining us tonight. How many of our members are in the house? I see a couple. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for being here. Montavo is a nonprofit organization. It's our members who keep our work possible, make possible the work we do to support artists, make possible the work we do on the grounds. How many people have seen the Bruce Monroe Stories and Light show? Thank you for coming. It'll be up until March 17th, and you can come back and visit. It's, um, I think it's quite stunning. It's been a nice moment in time to share something that's very beautiful when we're all thinking about all other kinds of things going on in the world. <coughs> I recommend it. Just saying. So we also want to thank, I think we've got quite a few people visiting us tonight from Netflix, so thank you for joining us. If it's your first time, we're glad to have you here. My colleague, my dear friend Emma Moon reached out and made sure you all knew this program was happening tonight, so thanks for coming. <coughs> Excuse me. So tonight, we're doing a program that we call Open Access. And we do it about four to six times a year. It's a moment when we open up our Sally and Don Lucas Artist Residency Program and give the artists a moment to share their process, their work and what they're doing. Um, how many of you knew there was an artist residency here on site? That's fantastic news. So our Sally and Don Lucas Artist Program it's an international program. We have artists who come from around the world to spend time with us, and they're coming in all different disciplines. When we select them, we give artists about three months of time until there's a project that looms and we decide they should come longer. We also give them three years to use that time. So they're coming in and out of the program, in and out of Silicon Valley, in and out of our community over that time. And it's weaving together a very interesting tapestry of folks. Um, we're spending the most of our time, most of our curatorial energy, our, our psychic energy in the residency this year as a staff, creating a catalog of the work we've done over the years, really supporting the creative process. The creative process is the mission of Montalvo. It's what we're here to do. Montalvo is a public park. It's open, you know, 364 odd days a year. And we're also a place to support um, Promising students of the arts. Who are those folks? What does that mean? And what does it mean to support people? Well, and for us, it's very important that it's about the creative process. It's about all of that messy work that happens between the seed of an idea and, and its final realization. <coughs> so I'm excited about tonight. I'm excited about our open access in this coming year because we're going to be hosting conversations with artists around the creative process, trying to really dig deep and understand what exactly that means. What happens in those moments as you're sort of going through developing new works and creating. So tonight our conversation will be moderated by my friend, my colleague, Lori Wood. She's the manager of our program. And she will be in conversation with Simon Pettit, poet visiting us from the Lower East Side of New York City, um, Zainab Al-Hashami, who's visiting us from Dubai, and Joie Lee, who's with us from Brooklyn. So I'm going to welcome them, and I'm going to sit and drive this thing tonight. Thanks for being here. <coughs> Thank you, Kelly. Hi, everybody. Thank you for braving the storm for being with us tonight. And we're here tonight to talk about surprise. 
uh, here we are and the Lucas Artist Residency Program. And we thought that as we do um, these open access programs periodically throughout the year, that we would welcome people into the kinds of conversations that we get to have around the dinner table with the artists. So at any time, we have about 10 studios. We have 7 to 11 artists at a time. We have other artists in the, in the audience here with us. Um, and uh, artists are in their studios working. They're collaborating with, uh, with their, um, their colleagues. Uh, and by the time they come down to the LAP dining hall, um, for this wonderful meal by our culinary artist Andrea Blum every evening, they are ready to talk with someone because they've often been alone all day. And that can be quite challenging to be alone with something you're trying to create. Um, so what we wanted to talk about today was what um, the role of surprise is. What's it like to be in there, you against your work um, for hours every day? Um, what can you plan? What, what can you not plan? What takes you by surprise every time? Simon and I talked about a little bit over the table. He said, surprise, it's all surprise. Um, we thought we would unroll this a little bit for you, show you a little bit of what the artists are doing, and then share a conversation with you at the end of this. Um, we'll, s we'll start with each of the artists. I will introduce them one by one, and they will show you a little bit about their work. Um, and um, we'll do each artist first, um, three in a row, and then we'll have a conversation about how surprise works in their work. And then we'll open it up to the audience so that you can participate. All right? So first I want to introduce Joie Lee, and we are really delighted to have her with us. It's been such a pleasure to have her at the table. You'll get a chance to see what Joie is like tonight. But she has this silence about her and this penetrating gaze. And she thinks for quite a long time, and then what she says is always really moving. Um, and um, it's been such a pleasure to have you with us, really a privilege. Uh, it, uh, being around our table is really something, you know, it's one of those privileges uh, to be able to sit with, with these people every night. So Joali is an actress, a screenwriter, a producer, and a director. And her acting credits include such films as Mo Better Blues, Do the Right Thing, that was directed by her brother Spike Lee. Who just won an Oscar last night. Who just won an Oscar <laughs> last night, yeah. <laughs> She was featured in Coffee and Cigarettes, directed by Jim Jarmusch. She made her Broadway debut in Mulebone, which was written by Zora Neale Hurston and Langston Hughes. And uh, she also appeared off-Broadway in Jessica Goldberg's The Hologram Theory. She's the original screenwriter of the feature film Crooklyn, which you may not know, and it was loosely based on her childhood growing up in 1970s Brooklyn, and she'll show you a couple clips of that tonight and talk about that. Her recent writing credits include two episodes of Netflix, She's Gotta Have It. And we're delighted to have Netflix here with us tonight. Uh, we hope to meet you afterwards. Um, recent acting credits include a recurring role on Netflix's She's Gotta Have It, as well as guest appearances on the upcoming season of Broad City. She's written and directed short films, including Subway Vignettes and Snapped, and we'll see a bit of that tonight. Her other work as a screenwriter includes Positive, which is a feature-length screenplay, and Jesus, Children of America, which is a UNICEF-sponsored short. And her producing credits include Crooklyn, Jesus, Children of America, and Nowhere Fast. And she's received fellowships from New York Foundation for the Arts and Screenwriting in 2008, and the New York Urban Arts Initiative in Screenwriting for 2008. So, um, it's really a pleasure to talk with Joali tonight, and I'll let her show you a little bit of her work here. Mm. 
Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you, Lord. Uh, it's really nice to be here. And um, I'm trying to think about I, how to begin this. But being here and being out of New York, I realize that I'm just, it, it's arriving here where I, when I realize how constricted <laughs> I am at home in my, uh, in Brooklyn. And I, there's, I expand, I think, a little bit, just kind of decompressing. And uh, I'm, I'm understanding this because I'm rather new to artists, to art, art residencies. Uh, so it's really, it's, it's really lovely to be here, so thank you very much. But I wanted to talk about this, the element of surprise, and just kind of thinking about it, because it's something that's so un unconscious, it's just uh, an in intrinsic part of the work, I think, of the, of the process. But I, was think I think about it in, in, in this way. I think about surprise, discovery, accidents, uh, just embracing the unknown, and I was thinking about serendipity, and serendipity was one of the first words that I, one of the first big words I learned as a child, and it was something my mother always talked about, serendipitous finds. Oh, that was a serendipitous find. And um, I think about that, um, because uh, I think a lot of my work is connected to my mother, and uh, when I was a child, I was a street kid. I grew up in the 1970s in Brooklyn, and I grew up on the streets, uh, pre-internet. We, we, we played games on the streets, uh, and my mother at some point when I was a child had asked me to begin collecting all of the street games that my friends and I played on the streets. All the kids played together, even if, you know, when fights broke out or something, but you just, you know, you reconvene and you played these games and sang songs and jump rope and played skelly and double dutch and all these street games. So at one point when I was a child, my mother asked me to begin collecting these street games because I think it was her hope to create some sort of anthology and uh, that never happened because she met an early death. So uh, that always stayed with me. And also, so the fact that I was collecting or observing, I was al always observing as a child and was the family kind of sponge. And so I think Crooklyn, in some sense, is that anthology. It's the first screenplay, feature-length screenplay that I'd ever written, and it was a beginning of something. It was a beginning of telling a story about family, about my family. And so I've been, uh, been on this continuum ever since. And um, so that's what I wanted to show first, are those kind of two clips. It's based on my childhood uh, growing up in Brooklyn during the 70s. So these are the kids in the film. The little girl is based on my character, and these are my brothers. So we could show their back-to-back -back clips, and they're just one minute. 
you with your mouth closed? Yeah. Don't start for me, shoot. I don't need you to fight my battle. Fool. So why is the good point? Let's fight the next. Yeah, well, yeah, we can just go. Hold your horses. Give me two licorice sticks, ten bazookas, some lemon heads, some fireballs, and some Boston baked beans. Is that right? Well, you ain't nothing but a damn Puerto Rican. Yeah, well, I give you some food. Ah, yeah, that's what you said. All the fine things. Um. Re so this was 26 years ago, by the way, when this was when this was shot, and I think what I realized uh, about this coming back to this is that I've been trying to. This is the discovery I think is that I've been working on telling the story about my childhood or my family or my mother uh, or my parents. Um, I've been on this continuum of doing that and I didn't realize, I didn't realize it uh, because there have taken, there have been so many iterations, um, so many different genres uh, and I, um, yeah, that was sort of that you know, the, the one, the person that's kind of collecting information. And I think I, you know, there's a spiral or this kind of going back to this, maybe revisiting this again. And um, I didn't, I, it's something that I didn't realize. And an example of this is when I came here to work, uh, I had something specific that I was working on, hoping to work on. And uh, I had shared it with someone who was showing it, showing the work, and uh, I received some uh, not very good, it didn't receive, it didn't have a good reception. So I sort of, I, w I was sort of flattened by this. Uh, they just weren't open to the work and I was flattened by it. 
And I, I just went through this, this period here where I had this expectation of what I was going to be in it and do and work on this, you know, this work. And uh, it did not turn out that way and it stalled my process completely. And I was really mad and really upset and just, I didn't know what to do and I felt as if the bottom had kind of dropped out. And uh, so I just, one of the things about this place where I'm just being close to nature is to take walks. And uh, I was just really upset this one day because I didn't, I didn't know what to do. So I went up the mountain in walking up the mountain, just this, this long hike up to, to, to the plateau. And I was just huffing and puffing and I was talking out loud and just kind of cursing and talking and just, you know, it finally made it up to the mountain. I was just really kind of asking what to do because I didn't know what to do. And I think, uh, you know, and in this process I realized that, oh, maybe this is not going to work. You know, maybe this is, maybe this is something that's just not going to work out. Um, and so when I came down the mountain, though, and I had been, kind of had this release, uh, something just dropped in about it. And I, and I just remember kind of through my tears <laughs> and all this emotion and just kind of exhaustion and just saying, oh, okay. And it was as if something had just, you know, maybe just uh, not knowing and accept, accepting that I didn't know what to do. And it hit this wall uh, and allowing myself to just lift through that and embrace that and be in that place. And I think out of that was born, something opened up and uh, another way to work, to see how this project could work without just kind of abandoning it. Abandoning it. Um, and that's, this is all kind of on this continuum of this and, uh, and writing about my mother and kind of discovery and doing research and all of that. So that's, that's kind of what I wanted to say, I think, about that. And that's why I used that, um, that clip there. And um, yeah, that's really, I, that's really what I wanted to say about the kind of serendipity and uh, and, and uh, discovery. So, let's see. I think the other thing that I wanted to just maybe introduce in the second, the second clip is a couple of years ago I was leaving New York and there was a sense of urgency and um, I decided that, oh, I have to make something because I'm leaving New York and I don't have anything to show. So I had written a few shorts, a few couple of vignettes, and um, these are just, I didn't have money to do it. They were just shot on the fly. They were uh, guerrilla, you know, guerrilla style. And um, the surprise was in kind of my, ab my ability to just kind of pull this off and create these shorts. And um, they, they, they were called subway vignettes and they all took place on the subway. And one is, uh, just a, um, a trailer, and then the second one is just a clip from the second, from the second, uh, the second trailer. Sorry, I'm a little nervous, I realize, talking about this stuff. <laughs> I'm not used to talking about my work in this way, so you have to pardon me.
sorry, I don't have any money. Excuse me, I, I, I couldn't help noticing you on the train. You're very striking. I was wondering if you had time for a cup of coffee. I think the, the main thing that I've wanted to kind of explore, or what I've, what I've discovered in, in, in the work is that I, I'm writing about the same thing. And that's been the biggest discovery in, what, in the last 30 years, is that I, I'm just writing the same, it's not the same story, there's different iterations, uh, but it, it's the same source of material. And I think I had this uh, revelation just recently, probably in, in the last couple of months, and I thought, I judged that. I made this judgment about there being something wrong with uh, not telling different stories. But uh, I think what I'm learning about as I get older is that it's sort of culminating into these different pieces or different ideas. and. Um, that really, just that it's really the same source material, which is, which is my family. And it's learning about trying to kind of understand and discover who my mother was because I didn't know her. So a lot of it has, you know, been born out of my research and, you know, over the years and asking and uh, doing interviews and trying to make documentaries about fa my family, a short film, or write these epics. And, uh, and then finding pieces, you know, of, of all of these different ideas all over the place that are kind of culminating in this, in this one piece, this one larger piece that I'm trying to work on. It's hard, I realize it's really hard to talk about one's work in this, this kind of way, but anyway, that's, that's, uh, that is the discovery, and I think that is the surprise for me, and the beauty and the pain, <laughs> and the pain of it, so. Thank you. You know, one of the things I notice as artists talk around the table of what they're going through in their studios, trying to wrestle this piece and this, um, it's a battle between themselves and something unknown. Um, the, uh, I notice that the, uh, at least I'm a writer myself, so it feels to me that the writers seem to experience more pain in the process, at trying to wrestle the thing up. 
and um, it'd be interesting to see what Zainab has to say, you know, as a visual artist, how that feels to not know and to bring something up from not knowing. Um, so Zainab al-Hashimi is a conceptual artist and designer and who was born and based in Dubai. And she specializes in site-specific installation and spatial art. And her process forges a connection between the traditional and the contemporary by collaborating with artisans and craftsmen. And Zainab's work deconstructs and reconstructs, and you'll see that here in the slides that she's brought us. She responds to her natural surroundings and she gives viewers a different perspective on the landscape in which they're situated in some very interesting ways. Um, she creates visionary art through raw and overlooked materials, reflecting the connection between nature and the industrial through implementing sacred geometry consciousness in the work. And this is deeply interesting. And Zainab is in, in residence at Montalvo through a collaboration uh, between Montalvo and SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, that has a series of, of artists in their artists in residence program. So we're uh, delighted to have Zainab with us for the first of perhaps several times, several visits to the Bay Area. And Zainab. Thank you, Mary. This is working, okay. So um, before starting the video and like the, the kind of work, I think um, I'm very, very happy to be here with uh, being in Montalvo and the Bay Area and just being at, you know, I, I flew 16 hours. There was, there's a 12 hours difference between home. So the good thing is that people have very few hours to call me and interrupt my, <laughs> my work and, and my time here. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, when I, when I saw first the topic of surprise, I was like, well, all, all of life is a surprise. You know, you don't really plan for things sometimes. And to start with, uh, I think I want to give a uh, big thanks to city uh, director, which is Charles Lindsay, for um, he was invited for a cultural summit and he was in Abu Dhabi, which is my capital uh, city. And uh, I remember not wanting to be in that lunch or event whatsoever because of the weather condition. And I was really complaining to my friend over lunch that the catering, they should have done a very, a much better job with the catering. And I remember, uh, I think, you know, Charles was coming for the first time to the UAE, which is the United Arab Emirates. And I think because I was wearing the traditional dress, he was very curious to just have a conversation, but I was, of course, complaining about the catering. <laughs> I was saying that they did a much better job last year. So I think Charles started the conversation, and, and, and that was the surprise, because um, it, it occurred to me, like, Charles was talking to me about what he does at City, and I was like, wow, scientists and artists, that's a very, that's a beautiful synergy, you know, to bring in both. And I said, well, you know, my work somehow talks about science in a way where I express uh, geometry and, and, and the kind of outcome of my work, but I don't necessarily refer to it as science just because of my skills. I'm not a scientist or I haven't studied like science except for school, but I think certain things come to me intuitively and I kind of trust them and I allow them to happen through my work. And uh, so it's so interesting because Charles sent me the same day a beautiful email asking me if I would actually, he checked my work and stuff. And then he said, I think you could be a good fit to city res residents. That was a surprise. So I think we're going to play the, the video and then I'm going to talk a little bit more about the process of my work. 
Um, so I think, um, you know, I started, I think it was 2009. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna make the story a bit short. It was 2009 and I just graduated from uh, university and I did study arts, but of course, because of the kind of, um, the, the, the art scene back home is still very fresh and still growing and it's not very common for someone to kind of graduate and become an artist or a practicing artist. Uh, it's not very common and easy to get a studio. It is, um, especially for like site specific and, and uh, to create art with, with a cer certain scale. Um, most people assume as an artist that you are either painting or drawing or maybe making sculpture in some way. Um, so I, 2009, I was completely like not knowing what is it that I would like to, to do or make, but definitely it wasn't finding a typical full-time job. Um, so the surprise was that after graduating with three months, I, I ended up being in a car accident. That was a very big surprise. So I, uh, I woke up with uh, knowing, I was told that I have 13 fractures and within, I think it was like, it was very, very interesting because there are certain uh, elements from my work that I only started to discover later, which is, again, I refer to that as uh, deconstruct de deconstructing something and reconstructing it, it again. And I remember looking at my, back in 2009, looking at my um, x-rays and seeing how unperfect my bones are. So 13 fractures from hip to, to ankle and, and I was like, well, that's gonna be very, very difficult to fix. I ended up being in, a, in 11 operations to, to get me back to start moving again. And uh, at some point I was on a wheelchair for seven months, so I was, I was thinking, okay, so this is just a temporary. Of course, the mind is very interesting in the way how it can take a trauma, uh, whether it is an emotional trauma or, or a physical trauma. You know, I mean, in a, in a, in a car accident, it's, it's a lot of things together. It's like a big mess that you have to figure out. And I had a lot of time to think about what is it that I wanna do. Uh, artist was not, of course, on top of the list because main important thing is that I wanted to be normal again. Um, I think at that point I realized that there's some certain, certain uh, thing about being to, wanting to be in control of a situation that I couldn't. And um, I think as I started recovering and getting better, I started really understanding that I kind of have a problem in being, I want to be in control of situations. And when... Um, when I, when I, whenever I remember that trauma, I was like, how is it possible that I was not in control? How is it possible to, that I allowed that to actually happen? And I was at some point you know, having conversations with God and asking him, how is it possible that you did this to me? So anyway, um, I think moving forward within my work, it started with the idea of construction. So construction, I come from, from Dubai and there's a lot of construction going on all the time. So my, I live on the main street and there's construction every day. And people tell me like, how, how, do you even, or how are you even able to sleep sometimes? And it's funny because you get used to it. You get used to the sound and the chaos and the streets and the, how busy the city is. And I always sometimes feel I'm actually always vibrating when I'm in Dubai. You know, it's something moving me all the time. 
So I think the idea of construction started building up on my mind and I was, as I started recovering, I was like, okay, the way doctors have deconstructed and reconstruct, reconstructed me is not the best way, but I try to sort of balance it out. So I started giving my, myself certain um, ways of, of how I would deal with my body, which is my right side is, 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 is weaker than my left side and my left side is, needs to be more stronger to hold my right side. So it, it's all about balance. And I think this is where I started unconsciously interested in geometry and the perfection of geometric shapes. And I started applying them a lot in my work. But for example, when, talk, when we talk about arts and mistakes and, and accidents, you know, I think our real life is just part of your art life and, it, and your work life is just all interlinked inter together. So um, coming also again from Dubai, the idea of constructing artwork is not common. So let's say you don't have a lot of design and fabrication studios to make your work and make your art. So as a solution, I started working with artisans, craftsmen, and that also included labor workers, which is they construct things and make them part of the art and make them part of my, my, my process and a big part of the mistakes that happen because as an artist, you have a certain vision, but let's say if you are working with, with a skillful person who is into cement and concrete and, and metal work, but not necessarily the aesthetics or how technical and functional sh things should be, it's very difficult for you to kind of communicate that in, in, in the way what's the perfection in your mind and the vision in their mind. And then again, there's always that sort of um, struggle for me to kind of accept things as they are or envision them in the way that I really want to. So anyway, this, this is an interesting project because I want to bring it up as the first project because when I first start, when I started conceptualizing this idea with the art, with the curator and for this uh, show, it was an, it's an Islamic art festi festival. And I said, okay, so we're gonna build, it's a very simple equation of putting in metal rods and having a mirror with, with a dome-like shape. And I, I've done all of the technical drawings and you send them to some kind of like a, I wouldn't say it's not a studio, it's really like a contractor. So the contractor ends up saying that he fully understand the project, you know, and then you come in on site and you know, you're, you're not able to go on, on their site. You're only able to come on the site of the event, which is the exhibition. Anyway, to move forward, just like maybe we can, they were there? Um, okay, oh, okay, no, we already did. So there was supposed to be a dome that shows the reflection of the, of the pattern of, of this metal rod. And then I come in and it's not a dome, but it's, it's half a dome cut off the, the, the ceiling. And, and that was the first shock. You know, but then I had to figure out that when I put the, the metal rods down, they don't even reflect. And then I remember like we were 10 people moving all of the, the metal around the, the space to find a perfect spot for it to reflect the pattern. And then suddenly it started, we started pushing it towards the end of the room. And there was a very interesting way of people viewing this work because it was not, suddenly it wasn't uh, very obvious, but it had to make them move around the work and discover things on their own. So that was, that was a very interesting mistake, uncertainty and also by surprise. But if we can go maybe forward with the other projects as well. This is the first time I discovered I like to repeat things and I couldn't manage to put things on, on 
un until unless they are sort of give you give you that sort of illusion. So it's it's it gives this kind of um, a blurry effect, and I think. Again, this has happened by mistake because I asked for neon tube lights and I asked for uh, uh, one sheet of metal rods. I ended up coming to the studio with the work that has been done already with this. Uh, if you can see, there's two layers of the, of, the, of the map of the world. And I was asking, why isn't the second layer transparent? And why is the first one I mean, you know, there's the tube lights and there's the second one, which I asked for a transparent acrylic. But no, that was not the thing that was done. Again, I think because of the next project, maybe we can show the next project again. There is a lot, a, a lot I work with so many people and, and I refer to them as collaborations. So the level of, of, of amount of people that come on board to create the installations, it varies on the scale of the project. So for example, I had one amazing opportunity, which was a collaboration with uh, Swarovski, which is the crystal brand. Mm -hmm. And they, we have uh, Dubai Design Week, which is a very, very popular event. You know, and I, when I got that opportunity, they said, okay, you can create whatever that you want with our crystals. And I said, amazing, I'm gonna create a kaleidoscope machine. So when I, when I went and, and started to explain the the, the concept, I had a very simple idea to create a kaleidoscope, which is, if we go back to the first image. Yeah, w w if we go back to the first image, it was literally one hexagon with one triangle, which, which had like, again, I'm talking a lot of technical stuff, but most of my work with surprises had to do with technical stuff and had to do with repeating things and, and geometry, but then I realized that I can't stop repeating things, I can't stop reflecting them in a way. And that made me understand how people were drawn to my work because of the repetition and because of the reflection and the possibilities that it, it was able to give them. But you know, like some people would come and show interest in my work and I was like, if they only knew, a lot of it was by accident, you know? It's only through <laughs> that that I was starting to understand my, my urge and my, my motivation in my work and then many of it was, was really, Un unpredictable, for example, when I gave them the brief, they said, yeah, but you need to use a lot of our crystals. We'd really love for you to use more and more crystals. <laughs> I said, yeah, but it's gonna cost a lot of money. I said, yeah, of course, you have an open budget. I was like, okay, this is not, not something that I'm used to, but let's go crazy. <laughs> so I think this is where I started building more hexagons and more layers. And if you could see, there are those triangle openings where people could look at them uh, inside them and see each other's reflections with multiple, multiple um, reflections in them where we could see it in the next, maybe. Okay, it's not, we, we don't have those images, but like people were really interacting and people were lining up to take pictures of the installation. It was so overwhelming. And this is where I think I, th I, I understood also by, it was, it was by accident that how much people love interactive art. And this is one of the things that I discovered that, okay, I come from a city that is <coughs> excited and interested into arts, but not necessarily understand sophisticated art or very conceptual art. And there is a message there when it comes to, for example, I can start talking about the numbers and the philosophy and the 
and the conceptual idea behind this work, but I realized that no one really cared about those things except <laughs> myself. It was mainly people really cared about the aesthetics and what brought them together with the work and how interactive it was. And I thought that was very so much fun and playful. And then I think at this point, this work was, it was, it was an invitation for a commission to be done in the Louvre of Abu Dhabi. And it was a very big surprise for me that I was asked to do a commission in the Louvre of Abu Dhabi. Uh, I was one of the four artists that asked, there were, aside from the international artists, there were only four, four uh, sorry, national-based artists that were asked to do something for the Louvre of Abu Dhabi. And I decided that, see, this is what's funny. This is a two years project that the space of the work kept changing over 10 times. They wouldn't know where to fit us. And imagine from, from day one giving an, a location. And I think you know a lot maybe of, of creative people and artists would also agree that a lot of the work has to come with art solutions and, and technical solutions that should, you should hold the space of your work without it being affected, but at the same time, you can't be very stubborn about a specific message sometimes, especially with site-specific and, and public art. You need to kind of work yourself around that work, the, the, the surrounding and the environment, and also sometimes the, the, the kind of crowd that it would bring in. So I think, you know, when they first asked for this work, it was supposed to be in, in a complete outdoor and sunlight coming in, and you know, start imagining that work for so long. And in two years, then they, they, they came to us and they said, listen, you guys are going to take the lower plaza. You know, it was shocking for us because a lot of the work was built on a public area and, and a lot of light into it. And over here, again, I, I worked with, uh, with glass blowing and craftsmen that does glass blowing, but also I always I, I really enjoy the idea of deconstructing and reconstructing. And this is over here. Uh, I was talking really about the idea of how this, this museum came into an island that is a natural island. But today, if you look up that island, it would say that it's a man-made island. And this is the very interesting and confusing thing about that our side of the world is that a lot of the things are man-made. So you've got a lake and you've got a a, a canal, and you've got some uh, man-made palm islands. You know, and for me, this was always also interesting because if I grew up with the idea of everything is possible, I think somehow it affected my, my mental state and my um, unconscious ability to, to make things possible. So there's a lot of, uh, I think there's so many deeper levels at how the work gets, how I construct work together, but at the same time, it really reminds me always of that sort of struggle and trauma that I had to, for example, you know, like waking up in a hospital is not the most positive thing with, with, with doctors trying to tell you that this is your limits to things. And I think um, I, my, I had this kind of rebel energy in me where I wanted to make things better and make things more possible, so I would like to always push the boundaries of what is possible, and, and there's so much surprise in that. Um, you know, having that sort of willpower and pushing things. But I'm not saying that everyone has to go through certain struggle into that. I mean, there's sometimes certain things are very, you, you could know them intuitively and try to kind of trust that process. 
even if it turns out not the, exactly in the way that you were expecting, it, it kind of, you know, it kind of turns out quite fine towards the end. So um, I don't know. I mean, I hope I try to point out certain things when it comes to surprise. That's wonderful. We'll have a chance to talk about this some yeah. more. Yeah. Beautiful Thank work. Yeah, I think I think I tried my best to sort of, you know, beautify things with work that is not necessarily looked as beautiful. Like the rebars over here, for me, reminds me of two things. It reminds me of all of the fundamentals and infrastructures and and all of the built-in uh, to to pour in concrete to build all of this sort of city that I live in today. Uh, but also it reminds me of, of, the, of the metal rods that I still have in me that hold me together, not in the most perfect way, but it's good enough. I mean, I can do really anything. I can do anything now. So yeah, I guess it's just holding things together and that, that, that uh, you know, art, I guess. Yeah. Beautiful, thank you. Thank you, Zainab. That was very, these are some things I didn't know, actually, about your work. Yeah. And thank you. <laughs> um, we'll move on and we'll, we'll introduce Simon Pettit, um, and then we will have a conversation. Simon Pettit is an English-born poet and a longtime resident of New York's Lower East Side. And he, a number of collections of his work has been published, including Selected Poems, which came out in 1995, and More Winnowed Fragments in 2006, his collected poems called Hearth appeared in 2010 from Talisman. And As a Bee appeared in 2014, and many of those poems he wrote here at Montalvo during a previous residency. Simon also compiled and edited two volumes of the work of the New York School poet, James Schuyler, and the latest was published by Ferris Strauss in 2010. And Simon made two now legendary collaborations with photographer, filmmaker, Rudy Burkhart, and they're called Conversations About Everything, that came out in 1987, and Talking Pictures, that came out in 94. And he also did a fine arts limited edition, Abundant Treasures, uh, with painter Duncan Hanna. And a quote that I liked very much about uh, Simon's work was from Ansel Berrigan who said that um, Simon's poems were as exquisite, irreducible poems that transmit lyrical shape and sense-oriented wonder with a numinous focus and care I find nowhere else in the art. They are among my necessities. Uh, I think that's beautiful. It's really been a pleasure also to be at the table with, with Simon. It's wonderful to see what artists say at the table and really particularly poets because you, you never know what poets will say. And you know, poets are of course are working, they're speaking at the dinner table in their medium. Um, and uh, welcoming Simon to us here tonight. Thank you, thank you. You can hear me? Yeah. My, my wife with the hair of a wood fire, with the thoughts of heat lightning, with the waste of an hourglass, with the waste of an otter in the teeth of a tiger. My wife with the lips of a cockade and a bunch of stars of the last magnitude, with the teeth of tracks of white mice on the white earth, 
with the tongues of rubbed amber and glass. My wife with the tongue of a stabbed host, with the tongue of a doll that opens its eyes, with the tongue of an unbelievable stone. My wife with eyelashes of strokes of a child's writing. My, with brows on the edge of a swallow's nest. My wife with a, uh, that's Andre Breton, it's not me. <laughs> um, surrealism, and, and, and the, the, for a poet, the, when Laurie first presented this notion of, of surprise, um, I, I thought of a number of things. I mean, first of all, the, the very act of, of writing, of being, uh, the very fact of a poet is, is an incredible surprise and bizarre uh, stance and, and existence. Uh, so, yeah, life is always a surprise, and, and the act, art is always a surprise, and the act of being engaged in that is a constant surprise. And for me, in a kind of uh, precious way almost, although I sincerely hope not, um, I write by virtue of, I, of, I'll write and then I'll rediscover what I've written. I mean, that's my practice. I'll write something down and then I'll not look at it for quite a long time. And then I'll, I'll look at it again and I'll, I'll, have, I'll be a different set of eyes to be looking at what's, what's there. And it's so I can disassociate myself from, and 90% of it is gibberish, you know, not that interesting. Um, but maybe 10% is, is, is okay. And uh, that kind of return to the material allows me to have that awareness. Uh, and you know, ego is out of the picture at this point because I'm, I'm looking at somebody else's, or some, I'm looking at words. So, um, uh, so that was one part, was just the very act of, of being a poet and, and writing poetry and everything is, 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 a, um, is a surprise in, in the deepest and most uh, profound way. Um, and then I thought a little further, as I say, about the, the, the act of, of, uh, of the poem itself and where one goes with the language. Um, and I started with the words of Andre Breton because uh, surrealism, uh, the, the, the strange and crazy juxtaposition from point A to point B um, is kind of surprise 101 in that way. I mean, that, that, uh, uh, and I actually, when I started, when I, my earliest inspirations, I have to remember and recall now was indeed that poetry could do that. I mean, I, I, I grew up reading a lot of poetry, but the, 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 I think the first thing that really slapped me over the face was, uh, I, all I remember to this day was in a, like a school textbook, a poem by the, uh, a surrealist poet called David Gascoigne. The poem was called the, the First Dream is the Dream of Isis. And I just, you know, I, I wasn't used to that possibility of, of, of poetry. And, and, uh, uh, and so, and, 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 and doors start opening, you know, and so you get more, more options and more possibilities. But um, surrealism remains a very interesting core of my poetic soul. Um, and I, I find myself, therefore, I'm, I don't think I'm a surrealist, but I, I love the jumps, I love the crazy surprise. <laughs> um, and what I'm gonna read today is, is, um, is, a, is a few poems that just are, are pointing to that particular phenomenon. Um, just before I do, one other poet, one other non-me into the air. Um, I love poems from all over the world, from all sorts of different poets, and, and uh, so I don't know why I'm necessarily singling on this one, but this is an American poet called John Wieners, died and lived in Boston, Massachusetts for many years, and um, 
And I'm going to read you just a very quick little snippets from an interview with him. It's really very short. But the point being that the juxtaposition of his answers to the seriousness of the questions sets up this whole business of surprise that I've been trying to address. Uh, he was also, he had some mental difficulties. He had a, a difficult time. It was not, a, a, not an easy life. So the first question is, have you ever had shock treatment? To which John replies, the typewriter had it for me. <laughs> and they ask him, how do, how, do, how do you write your poems? And John answers, I have two teenage girls who help me, Norma and Edith. They do most of the writing. Uh, then Martha Randolph congeals it in my head. Uh, have you been pleased lately with a critical response to your work? Uh, John answers, no, I hate being singled out. Uh, question, it seems like you're blaming God in some of your poems. John, those are just secret roadmaps. Uh, question, a lot of your poems are in touch with the feminine instinct. John, I've never been able to come to grips with male topics. Question, do you believe in the existence of hell? Answer, I always have. And heaven? Less so. <laughs> Question, are you still writing? Answer, yes, but I didn't bring along a pen. Question, how do you spend your days? Answer, I get up early to avoid custodianship. Ah, I'll stop, oh, actually I'll, I'll read one final one from that little interview because it's again the, the surprise, which is precisely what I'm trying to address. Um, the context of this particular Q&A, uh, John Wieners comes to, to Brooklyn College, hey <laughs> Brooklyn, um, <laughs> and uh, um, uh, the poet Allen Ginsberg was, was then teaching at Brooklyn College and brought him along and uh, uh, was very, kindly um, set him up to read some poems to a lunchtime audience that was not necessarily uh, students, although the students were there, but was uh, a lot of folks who just came in to, to see the poetry and have a free lunchtime experience. Um, and there was a little Q&A after it, and, and uh, um, which I've, I've read you a little bit, and one guy gets up and says this, which I, I can qualify, but I don't, probably don't need to. Question, Mr. Wieners, last week uh, the poet John Ashbury came and read his poems and then answered questions. He seems to be completely irrational in his poetry and completely rational in his life. You seem to be completely irrational in your life and completely rational in your poetry. Uh, and, uh, and John's answer is very sweet. It has never been my intent to be irrational. Um, that uh, I wanted to I wanted to address that that um, disjunct again between a, a um, between a juxtaposition, you know, a surrealist juxtaposition, and something that's not just uh, that's uh, that's not irrational <laughs> in some fundamental way. It isn't simply show off or or, or whatever. Um, Speaking of surrealism, I, I, I had the uh, honor to meet uh, not only this man Gascoigne, but also uh, uh, Eduardo Ruditi, who was the great translator of, of uh, Breton into, into English, into American English. And uh, I foolishly asked Ruditi, I said, I'm 26 years old at this point or something like that. And I say, uh, I met uh, David Gascoigne, the other guy from Surreal. 
And uh, Ruditi responds, he says, yeah, uh, his translations are, are no good. Mine are great. Mine are the real ones. <laughs> I mean, good egotism. You know. And then I said, uh, I, and then Ruditi continued to say, he says, his translations are sausage grinders. It's a very interesting sort of realism. So they're not bad, they're not good, there's just there's some more of them. They just keep on coming. And, it's, you know, and you can juxtapose this word with that, and you can... Uh, and what Rodini was, was <laughs> saying was his translation, no, you have this surprise, uh, but you also have... I mean, it's not simply that's the shot. It's not just simply a one-off in that way. So, um, yeah. And then one final point before I do read a poem and explain what this is <laughs> happening behind you, because you suddenly realize you've been looking at it for quite a while. Uh, um, well, this is it. Satori. A quote from the great Zen uh, teacher, Suzuki. This acquiring of a new point of view in our dealings with life and the world is popularly called, popularly called by Japanese Zen students Satori, or Wu in Chinese. It's really another name for enlightenment. Uh, the sense, perhaps, that this disjunct, this surprise, one version of it anyway, I'm not saying it, is to sort of slap you into some sense of uh, satori, <laughs> awakenness, understanding. And behind you <laughs> is uh, a work of the uh, artist George Harriman, the, the uh, uh, New Orleans-based uh, um, artist who, who was famous for the comic strip Crazy Cat, K-R-A-Z, Y-K-A-T, came out in the, in the 20s, 20s? I mean, I'm, I'm sure m many of you are uh, familiar with it, maybe. Um, anyway, uh, and these two are the two sort of iconic characters. This ran forever in, in newspapers and whatever. Uh, and that's Crazy Cat, the little guy on my, your, my, your left. Oh, anyway, over there. Uh, and this is a little guy called Ignat's Mouse, uh, on the, who's... Um, who's throw, throwing a brick at Crazy Cat. And this was a sort of the routine they had. I get it. Um, and uh, got to find the poem now. I suddenly realized it didn't have that one written down. Um, and so the idea was, was that the surprise to just to wake you up, to sort of slap you around. Um, and I, I have a poem coming off that. <laughs> which I will, will find in just a moment. Let's move to the next one, because I will conclude with that, perhaps. So the, in writing a poem, the, the, so the, at any given point, at all given points, you're looking to, to surprise yourself also, I mean, at every point. Uh, this was called New Amsterdam. Um, for the last maybe 20 years now, I, I write very small little lyric poems such as this one. And uh, I found that the, the necessary way to transmit this poem to you folks is to read it more than once. And I also what I do is, for me, to keep the surprise, to keep it not be some tired rote, uh, I will find myself changing the cadence and changing the music and, change and, and messing with the, with, the, with the poem to some degree. How uh, New Amsterdam, written in, written in old Amsterdam by the, by the, you know, by the canals, uh, I live in, in New Amsterdam, in New York City. How, how fortunate to be alive for just this second. How glorious to be in this light, which will never be the same again. 
how beautiful, sad, and immaculate Ein Anders, the middle-aged bicyclist, he too is alive. The woman who carries her mewling child piggyback, the north wind that blows in my face, even the couple going by in a boat, they too can't refrain from taking pictures. How, how, how fortunate to be alive for just this second. How, how glorious to be in this light, which will never be the same again. How beautiful, sad, and immaculate. Ein Antus, the middle-aged bicyclist, he too is alive. The woman who carries her mewling child piggyback, the north wind that blows in my face, even the couple going by in a boat, they too can't refrain from taking pictures. So at any and all points in that poem, there's uh, uh, strategies for surprise, you know, and, and, uh, and also to some degree, uh, um, juxtapositions of the sort I was referring to in that kind of surrealist um, uh, source. Um, I, I better not do too much of these because I'll take forever. Though. But uh, for, since this is up there and why not, you know, here um, in this poem, Ein Anders, I mean, I don't even speak German or, or Dutch. <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, so at the same time, uh, it breaks. It's a surprise. It came. That's how the poem came. You know. um, and, uh, and similarly, the, sort of the, the very delicate dance of, of, of not to be too cute, you know. So um, the concluding line in the poem is, is, is a, it's a pretty <laughs> ridiculous pun, you know. Um, but hey, <laughs> next one, please. All right, so here's uh, uh, another instance of, of um, particular ju just, uh, jumps, surprises. This poem. I love reading this poem forever because you, you read the first line, which is what came first. And it's, it's a little hokey and intentionally again, but it's, it's also completely serious. Uh, Kundalini serpent power in readiness. Uncontrollable laughter spasms and crying. Wiggy, wired, pull yourself together, man. The moment so fleeting. Wash your tooth, wash your rings, dry your hair in the river with a raggedy old cloth, put clean socks on your cold feet, sleep in the same bed with a mirror, your sister, but never touch the mirror. The quest for this gem has as a prerequisite, spotless. Keep it spotless. Kundalini serpent power in readiness, uncontrollable laughter, spasms, and crying. Wiggy, wired, pull yourself together, man. The moment so fleeting. Wash your tooth, wash your rings, dry your hair in the river with a raggedy old cloth. Put clean socks on your cold feet. Sleep 
in the same bed with a mirror that your sister, but never touch the mirror. The quest for this gem has as a prerequisite spotless. Keep it spotless. Next one. I'm this dumb schmuck out buying a bag of salted peanuts. Whoa there, says my lady. She's dressed all in gold scarves and spinning and dancing like she's some kind of dervish and I better watch my step. But I'm too wisely drunk to pay it any mind. And lately, I just get all wound up. I'm this dumb. New York City, I mean, again, the, the, I'm, I live on the Lower East Side of New York City and so uh, to, to, to write a word like schmuck is, is a great pleasure, you know. Um, <laughs> I, am, I am a dumb schmuck, no out of it. Um, and um, la la la, there's various, we, I was talking to Laurie earlier about this, the, 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 the dervish, the, the, there's, there's some, um, some curious um, uh, surprises at every point in, in, in that poem. Um, and uh, okay, well, I will, let's do one more and then let's uh, almost, let's close it uh, speed, by the way, was the other thing in this one. I wanted to, um, um, I, 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 I have slow poems and I have long poems, and, and this is another thing that, that uh, creates surprise, I think, um, because the poem's going by so fast, you don't get to sort of hook onto anything. So this is, I'll do this, I'll do this fast, I mean, this is how it goes. Whip, and it, it starts also with, again, this like tightrope walk of, of cliche or pathos or whatever wept over Delacroix's watercolors while he was still in his vigorous 30s. What you must strive to achieve, he said, is a method of composition, an anxious one, a noble one. Lights represented by reds and yellows, and for air, a sufficient quality of blue, because blue is an expression of constancy and truth. Blue, blue room, blue, 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 blue being the color that best expresses the mood. He is far away fixed. Notice the map and the furnishings. I wouldn't sit on that chair if I were you and also fix Miss so much. She appears to be pregnant or a little bit hungry for something. It has to be food, which it is. <laughs> which is, that's the, which if, if it is, let me do that from the top again. <laughs> blue being the color that best expresses the mood. He is far away fixed. Notice the map and the furnishings. I wouldn't sit on that chair if I were you and also miss so much she appears to be pregnant or a little bit hungry for something it has to be food if it isn't him which it is is he gone for good a seafaring man she doesn't say though appears to be trusting the beautiful ambiguous face of another person's muse pace slows down on, on that poem um i don't know that's is there, that's probably oh there's one more of these oh yeah so um again i wanted to just to, to summon up the, the beauty of Montalvo and, 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 and the slower um, awareness of just looking, um, which is another concept of surprise, I think. And we were, my, I was spending a little time, um, this is a picture of a heron, glimpse of heron on the riverbank in the fine mist of late afternoon, camouflaged by reeds. So green, so nonchalant. So now you see me, now you don't. Kabuki! And now I appear again and splash 
and spears and dips his head towards the silver light. A glimpse of heron on the riverbank in the fine mist of late afternoon camouflaged by reeds. So green, so nonchalant. So now you see me, now you don't. Kabuki, and now I appear again. And splash and spears and dips his head towards the silver light. Um, so that's a little um, dance through a few poems. And uh, that poem with the Ignats, I, I'll, I'll read it before we leave. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Simon. Mm -hmm. So you've gotten a chance to see, thank you, all of you, what it's like after dinner sometimes at the Lucas Artist programs. Uh, we have dinner, we sometimes go in the library, and artists will introduce their work to each other. This is the first time among this group, unless you've done it when I wasn't here, that you've actually presented your work to each other. Um, and um, I, I often notice around the table that it, the, the, the texture of conversations gets very, very different after people have had a chance to share their work with each other. Um, this is the first time I got to see Joie's clips and um, um, Zainab, I had seen some of your work before. But um, you know, thank you for that, those comments on surprise. So many of these are a surprise to me also. Um, one of the things I'll open with is um, this, as I was looking around and thinking about surprise, I found this quote by Julia Cameron, the creative process is a process of surrender, not control. Um, mystery is at the heart of creativity, that and surprise. And uh, Zainab, I heard you talk about control a little bit, when that those moments when you think you're in control, one never is. Yeah. And learning to live with that fact that you are never in control. It's the work does what it does. And I it's something, Simon, you said, that's how the poet ca poem came, you said. Right. <laughs> right. As though, you know, you made it and you got to decide. Yeah, um, I'm, but that's just, it's just me. I mean, I, I do think the, the poem, uh, I'm old fashioned notion of the muse you know, coming out. You know, I don't want to get too <laughs> spacey. Um, <laughs> but the poem, yeah, the poem comes, the, the work comes to you. Um, it's as simple as that, <laughs> and and so one then needs to have the respect for what what's coming to you, uh, but also you have yeah you you control it <laughs> you 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 engage yourself with it, um, I don't know if that's true in, in yeah in I think uh, I think I mean sometimes it's just a, a kind of process that you should start to understand and it's like a give and take, so um, there are certain things that. Um, it could be certain poems or certain movies or certain ideas that you're trying to write down and work on and then suddenly life takes you to a different place where this starts becoming on hold but then it can come at least sometimes two years later, three years later where you understand I can pick up that actually and bring it back here. So it's a very playful sort of way that you can maybe con be in control of things to a certain extent and a certain limit but um, Sometimes it's easier to also know when to kind of surrender for that moment and even for certain works to let them go or not hold. I think we, we were talking about attachment and detachment. Mm -hmm. So I think also that really goes uh, around the idea of uh, 
of control and not being in control and also allowing allowing space or, or opportunity for surprise you know I, I also I think the mindset of, of surprise can change from one person to another so some surprises we can take them as good or bad but if we can try to not judge surprises and allow them to happen as they are happening that's also a w- one way of looking at life and work and yeah. yeah. I think sp- spontaneity is part of that too, you know, that um, let it go w- where it goes uh, is, is a component of this. Yeah, sort of, I think also just sort of embracing the unknown. You know, I mean, that's, I think that is part of the mystery as well, is that you don't know where it's going to go. You can have some idea but you're talking about the, the views and having it come to you. I think there's also the notion of meeting it and sort of setting that time or space, even though it could happen not at the desk or, you know, but yeah. when you're at the sink uh, doing dishes or something. But it is allowing yourself to... Uh, I guess open up in some, you know, kind of just having, just kind of being receptive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think what you, uh, Zenit, you mentioned before uh, collaboration. I mean, here we are here in, in that way too. Is, is a really uh, liberating uh, aspect of this, uh, uh, this experience because you, uh, in collaboration, it will go where it goes again uh, because someone else is going to take it take over. You don't have this business of a desire for control. There's no way you can control if, if you're a collaborator. You're, you're doing something different. You're, you're melding and working with, with, with others. Film, to me, is, is extraordinary. I, I mentioned this before, that I go to the movies and I see all those, <laughs> all those names at the end and the, the sheer amount of human engagements there. Uh, poets, it's, you can sort of get away <laughs> with a piece of paper and a pen, yeah, maybe. Um, but so I, I, I love this notion of, of collaborative art and, and, and uh, your work is, is uh, profoundly that. I mean, all working with all these people, it's not singly you in that way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and that frees you, I think, a big time for in this notion of control of, of, uh, or wanting to you know, have control. You don't have control. <laughs> and Joa, uh, you know, as, as you talk about working with a group of people, what is surprise like working in film or when, when you've got all of these people to deal with and all those opinions? Yeah, it depends on, of course, your, your position because the director is the person who's driving, who's driving the ship. Um, uh, with, with these shorts that I made, it was a very small crew. It was just me and a DP and a sound guy. And uh, so, you know, there was a lot of freedom. There was a script that we were shooting from, uh, but we were also doing it kind of guerrilla style. So there was, and I was, I'd written it, and I had wanted an actress to do it, and I couldn't find the people that I wanted. So that was one, another surprise. I said, oh, I guess I have to, you know, I'm going to have to do it myself. So it really is, 
Sam Henrique is a really great DP, and I just we you know we we played around a lot with. We were shooting at 6 a.m. We was guerrilla. We you know we we didn't have uh, a permit, you know, to shoot in, in New York subway. So there were all kinds of things that we were just kind of just going with, just shooting, just kind of playing around. So there was a lot of freedom there, which is very different uh, on a no budget versus obviously, uh, you know, a budgeted kind of production. But we still had, there was still some structure. Uh, but there, it, it definitely is collaborative. It definitely is, film is definitely a collaborative um, process. And when you're the writer on something and then you have to give it over to a director, how does, what's that like? That's I mean, really what kind hard. Of, what kind of surprise, that sounds awful. Yeah. I That's hate really that, hard. I hate even thinking about well, it I, actually. I, I found that to be really hard. That really, that, that, yeah. <laughs> that, that's hard. I didn't know what that was like. It's one thing when you are a writer for hire and you know, you come in there, you're a hired gun, you know. Um, I, I hate to go back to Crooklyn again, but that was an experience where I had never written anything and um, my brother, Sinke, had showed it to, to Spike and he said, oh, I want this to be my, my next film and as soon as Spike bought the idea. I had this kind of seller's remorse, and I said, oh, I, I, I changed my mind. I changed my mind, I don't want you to direct it. And he was like, too bad. <laughs> Go write another one. So what was, what was, what was really difficult um, was that I was on the set, and, and I, was, I was really upset just because I said, this is not my vision. This is not my vision, and this is my brother. I would never get the opportunity to do this anywhere else on any set because I just would not even have, been, have access. You mm. don't get the access, you know, it's not, this is not theater, mm. it's not the play, you know, you're not the playwright. So I just, I just really had a fit about my vision. I said, you know, this is the 70s, they didn't say yo, they didn't say, I was just all about the detail and the nuance and stuff. And it was really cool, he said, well you can come on the set and you can work with the kids and you can do this and you can do that. So I had some, I had some access, but that was not the norm. Uh, and that made me realize, okay, I, I, I want to make, <laughs> you know, I, I want to have some more control over my vision. If you have your vision, it's coming out of you, you know? So, and I didn't, I didn't write this for anybody. It was written on spec. I didn't get hired to write something like that. So that's, that I think is the difference. But that's, that's me. Other people are not as attached to their, I, I don't believe that. I don't, actually, they are. I have. I, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't see how you could give birth to that, you yeah. know, and just here's my baby, mm -hmm. take my baby, do what you want with it. I, I had a, a, an instance where I, um, I met a, a terrific composer, and we had this great fantasy that we were going to write an opera, you know, it's a big fantasy, and uh, I was going to write the libretti, and I was going to be so, so accomplished, and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he was writing the music, you know, and he, was, he really was a terrific musician. And uh, his idea was to write an, an opera on Aeschylus's Agamemnon. It's his idea, not mine, uh, which is the, f uh, the first book of the trilogy there. So I, I, I thought, all right, I'm up for this, and I'm very up for this. Uh, but I'm not a librettist, I'm a poet. And so I, I started, uh, what I did is I first of all got a million translations. I'm also not a classic scholar particularly. I got a, I got a um, million translations of, of Aeschylus and, and, uh, and buried myself in what happens. And the very beginning of the, uh, of the Aeschylus is, is a, the, the story of the night, the watchman of the night, the, who sees the fires in Troy. And uh, 
So I worked diligently in making this little po poem, musical piece, whatever, libretti, uh, for part one, the very beginning of a huge, giant thing. Um, and then I, I brought it up to, to my collaborator, my musician collaborator, who proceeded to sort of set it to music, but nah, that's not, that's not what I was, that's the wrong music. <laughs> that's, nah. Um, and then, uh, well, <laughs> it was a solitary lesson. I mean, I, I, I managed to get one poem <laughs> out of the, the, the singular little piece that I wrote there. Uh, he went on to, to translate the rest of it, and uh, never, I'm not sure if he ever performed his opera, but he, I mean, he, he it, it, all I'm, I'm getting to, I'm perhaps getting too long-winded about it, but there's, yeah, you, you, it's your baby. It's, and, 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 and so to, to have it be taken away from you uh, is necessary sometimes, I guess, you know? Um, mm -hmm. but, uh, but it's salutary too, yeah. Um, but I can't imagine uh, uh, the, the, the wider collaboration of film, and that was enough trauma for me. <laughs> <laughs> And what about when you work alone? I mean, that's yeah. not worse, but maybe it is. Um, I mean, there's, what's it like to be surprised by what you're making? You're alone with it, any of you. Um, I think, um, you know, this becomes very intimate and very personal sort of process that you can, um, that you can go back to things that you actually sort of either dreamt of, envisioned, uh, wrote about, sketched. And uh, there comes a time sometimes in, in certain situations in your life where you remember that you kind of went through this before. Like you, 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 you either came across it or it came by surprise that you actually got this opportunity. And you remember you kind of wished for it in a way or another or imagined it and it is such a big surprise that you can't really share it with anyone because it doesn't matter like it is only a surprise to you you only know that about yourself like sometimes i mean you get excited and you say like you know that i thought about this at some point and remember when this and this and someone could tell you no i don't it doesn't matter it's not, it's not really important to the outside world it is more important as a surprise it's a personal su surprise if that makes sense mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. That's, that's, I guess, in my own kind of alone way of working on things. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, Simon, I, I understand what you're saying, Zainab. And I yeah. also, Simon, you had said something earlier about having written and then kind of filing it away. Right. And then rediscovering it later. Yeah. That's something that I, I have experienced uh, as well and forgotten about. And then the surprise is, oh, I, I, or there's the rediscovery and there's also the serendipity in that, and that, mm -hmm. oh, wait a second, I, I realize I've already written this or, yeah, you know, it was just, it was just something that, that was filed away and. Well, we're looking, I mean, we're looking at subconscious, you were talking, for example, before about the, you know, the coming back to the same themes, yeah. the recognizing the same themes. Recurring themes. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I mean, uh, the, the poet writes the same poem all her, his, her life, the, or the, this notion, uh, or even more specifically, the sort of thematic things come kicking through, and this is, 
you know, an interface between, uh, I guess, the psychology, the, the, the human experience there, and the art, and, and the, the, the work that comes out. Um, and it is, it's serendipity, it's such a serious, good old Jungian synchronicity, for example. I mean, what a, what a pleasure, you know, and what a, what a curious little uh, frisson or whatever. Um, and uh, so, yeah, one learns, I think, to sort of um, um, be open to that and to, to try and, and, and see it uh, uh, in your work. Um, but as I told Laurie at the beginning of this whole uh, event here, you know, it's all a surprise, you know? It's all a surprise. And mystery. Mystery, yeah. But I, I, also, I also do agree with Zane that it's not just going to be, um, it's a really intimate process. I mean, I would be, I would, just what goes on in the mind or even what, do, what one does or. Yeah, very much, yeah. I like ritual, you know. I like, I ritualize in some way. Mm -hmm. not, not consciously, it's nothing that deep, but this is what I'm saying. It's, it's so intimate that I don't, I don't know how to explain a lot of the process because it is so intimate. Like you said, you would not, you would not tell anyone mm -hmm. yeah. that. Oh, I, I, I'm, yeah, mystery is, is, is really yeah, very accurate there, yeah. There is this sense of, uh, and to the degree that you unlock it, <laughs> it's not mystery anymore, it's not. Yeah. Um, Shall we let the audience come into the conversation? So. We have a free microphone here. And Robert's gonna come down and bring it around. Hi, I can see you out there now. This has been so, uh, just an awesome presentation. Thank you to all you artists. Ms. Lee, I have a question, um, and maybe it's too personal of a question, but I'm wondering before your um, shorts and your clips, why you didn't lead with the fact that you never knew your mother. Yeah, because that is the hardest, I think that's probably, that's a good question. And I feel as if I always lead with my mother. So it's funny that you say that, because I feel as if I always lead with that. And I feel as if I wear it on my sleeve. So there was some sort of hmm. unconscious, um, I don't know what happened, that tripped me up. And I don't know, because it's, it's interesting that you say that. But I feel as if I lead with it all the time. So maybe I was in some way trying not to do that, even though it's such, it's such, it's a central theme, you know, of everything I do. So that's yeah, very interesting that you caught that. It was very interesting to me. Wow. I mean, that was a surprise because it, everything looked so intimate that it, that was a shock to hear that. So that was interesting. Thank you. Thank you for yeah. saying that. Um, So it, it has been a very interesting conversation, and all of us here, are, you can just feel the seat moving, you know, <laughs> when you all are talking. Um, but, you know, and Joab, you pretty much brought this up um, 
my question to all of you, not just to Joie, but Joie brought the idea into my mind. Um, what about the time from when you created a work to where you are now in your life? So you had Crooklyn, and then you have the shorts, and Simon, you've had your poems that, that you've read that were written some time ago, I'm, I'm imagining, and some um, contemporary. But now you revisit them. In your case, Joie, it was 20 plus years, I think, that you were looking at Crooklyn again. Yeah. So maybe the work doesn't change, but we change. So once you're revisiting this intensely personal work and you're a different person 25 years later, have you found surprise in revisiting the work in your current person, your current self? Uh, yes, I think that's a great qu question, Jeannie. And yes, the I've matured, so now I don't <coughs> see this through the, ch the lens of the child. I see it through the lens of the mother. And that's part of the, the discovery and the surprise and also the wanting to know and learn and understand uh, who this person was and, and part of my, and, and reimagining it, why I'm revisiting it, to know who she was. Um, but it's also as an adult now I can, I can understand um, more of the issues that I couldn't understand as a child. So that's, that's the major, that's the major difference for me. When I was 18 and I read Siddhartha and then read it again when I was 50, the experience was completely different. So I'm just wondering, Simon, with you, um, how does that apply to your work? Does that happen with you? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't even know you were there. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, when you listen, it's a good question. What your question, uh, I love this uh, adage of the poet Ezra Pound, of poetry's news that stays news, um, which is kind of clever. And, and uh, I find that to be true. Um, and uh, so there's a sense that revisiting or coming back to something or, or you know, re returning to something, um, yeah, it, it's, you're, you're, old, you're, you're different uh, and the world's different, but, uh, and sometimes in quite uh, profound ways that uh, at, um, you're, you're prescient. I mean, I, 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 I recognize precognition in, in, in poetry. Um, so that's interesting and, um, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, that's how I feel. Hello. Can I make one more comment though, just about kind of these, these themes and just kind of seeing it through a different lens or maybe just having a little bit more maturity is that I guess the big surprise about kind of seeing this and looking back and revisiting it is that um, I had it, my fa there was no grief that took place when this film was made. It wasn't, there wasn't, uh, it hadn't happened. It was a, it was a de delayed thing. So that sort of 
what has given birth to the kind of revis uh, revisiting it. Um, things that catch up with you in your life. So uh, that's, that I think was the enormous kind of surprise there, or discovery. Hi. Um, yeah, so I have a question for all of you. And um, you've all spoken about collaboration and also perhaps suppression of ego to help facilitate that process. Um, but I'm interested, you know, have there been situations where you've collaborated and you felt that it hasn't gone well, that your creative vision has been compromised? And then how do you react to that and how do you can get past that? Is this to me, uh, That's to, uh, interested to all of your perspectives yeah, if you have. You want to take that one first? Um, yeah, I think um, um, when I first started, I think the idea of collaboration came across as a natural thing for me to start because um, I had my own insecurities when I was as an art student that I did not own a skill myself, as in like, I didn't think I was a good, I, would, I didn't think I was good in painting, neither sculpture, neither um, I don't know, new media and like mixed medias and stuff. So I think uh, it started off as, uh, okay, how about I work with other people? And I think it started, I started building that sort of concept uh, without me really referring to it as collaborations. Mm -hmm. But like I would say, I haven't done m the work myself, but it's like I'm, I'm, I'm giving credits to other people like artisans and, and, and uh, you know, technical people to work with me on this. Um, and I think it started really growing that it start, it, it came like I would somehow, the energy I would have around my work is that it welcomes people to kind of come and interfere with my work and give their opinions. And then it's a, like I said earlier, it's like a give and take. So I think it comes in with um, having your opinion about things, but it, in the end of the day, the other side, it's nothing personal. If someone comes in and says, you know, your work makes sense, your work doesn't make sense. And I, and I do get a lot of, of people interfering with, with maybe the vision, depending on, uh, let's, say it's a, it's a, let's say it's an important client. And my client or that I'm collaborating with is a brand. And I do have this sort of like non-commercial work and commercial work for me to kind of survive as well. Um, and it, it's, it happens that all of a sudden, brands are interested in art with, to work with artists. Um, <coughs> uh, certain institutions or, or uh, yeah, like private and semi-government institutions uh, uh, want to work with artists. So sometimes they become like a client if they're going to commission you as an artist. This, is, this happens a lot in my case. So it comes in sometimes with a certain list of, of of what they are expecting from you as an artist. Like let's say, not to interfere with your vision or, or your work or your conceptual idea, but for example, it could be as simple as using their material. It could be like a sustainable uh, material or oh, please work with a recycled material. So for me, it puts in a lot of work to put in a proposal together, pitch that idea, and then it comes in negotiation sometimes. Um, and it is really, really very, um, it is non-personal in the way you need to kind of feel about how people feel about your work before you, uh, the work is being done even. They, they, they can be, people could be very opinionated, like could, they could say something like, well, it looks quite dull. 
from a sketch, you know? And I didn't get that. It's like, how about you throw some color on that? <laughs> and then sometimes it's like, uh, it could be something like use more crystals or something like, and it's really, you need to kind of play it very well with different people, with different clients. Um, you need to be diplomatic sometimes. You need to be uh, firm sometimes or just pull, pull out everything and just say it doesn't work for me. So it really, really depends. You, you, I think it, it, the, it's not a matter of, again, judging it as positive or negative. It's just a matter of process. Some things work, some things don't work. I do have certain proposals that sometimes I pull out for, for, for new clients, some proposals that have been rejected by clients, and it is nothing personal. I think that's how I look at it. Yeah. Very seldom do we get a chance to say thank you to Kelly Seacat sitting over at the podium <laughs> who runs this entire program. Thank you, Hugh. But to be very personal to the people who are here, excellent pros, and you've kept your positions really very well all evening. I just wondered something very personal. When you come here, and you come from Brooklyn or New York or areas where your minutes are very different from Saratoga, yeah. California. Or Dubai. <laughs> or Dubai. <laughs> or Dubai. <laughs> and you meet here, and secondarily, you have a situation where you're able to meet in the general area with the other artists, which is also a wonderfully exciting area of everyone mingling. But there must be one moment when you were here and it was quiet and it was away from all of your past. Did you have a surprise moment here just for you? having one now. <laughs> gratitude is another, another place for me. The, 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 that sense of, of gratitude. As, I mean, not that I'm, I'm not I'm surprised overly, but that was my, my place with that. Just uh, I'm talking about a moment of, yeah, just, just. <laughs> uh, especially from the Lower East Side of <laughs> New York City to, to Montalvo, California. Sure. I think it's nature yeah. for me and just the proximity. I mean, it's not as if, we, you know, there isn't nature in Brooklyn or Prospect Park, but it's just, we're just, just the close proximity here. Um, and the, it's so quiet. I it's would, so quiet. Yeah, I would agree with nature as well. Um, my nature is the desert, 
and I love the desert and everyone should try the experiencing being in the nature of the desert but for me being in over here is overwhelming I don't see a lot of many green trees around uh, not even in a park back home you have palm trees but not not yeah. not that many trees um, so I think um, I would go both gratitude and also nature uh, it's just a very similar way of, I guess, when you first come here, it's been just a week for me, not even a week, almost like five day, five nights. Um, and I think it's very similar to someone wanting a retreat to kind of clear your mind. I think that's the main purpose of a residency for artists and creative people, to just kind of have this sort of, you know, pleasure to meet everyone from different backgrounds and be on that sort of a retreat, really. I, I really appreciate the silence. I really do. And that's something that I think about every day, just as whether it's in the studio or just being kind of walking and just saying, I can't hear anything, or, or, you know, or listening, just using a sense of listening, you know, using a sense of seeing and the, the redwood, mm -hmm. you know, just, I don't see this every day. Uh, there is gratitude. There is gratitude in that um, because I wish I could have this all the time. It's magical. It really is. I, I wish I could have this every day. Uh, hi. Um, first of all, thank you for the session. This has really been a pleasure to listen to all of you. Um, I'm a software engineer and um, I like to think there is some kind of art in it. We even call our software packages as artifacts, uh, if there's any truth in it. So I work with other software engineers and sometime, you know, we have deadlines to meet and I ask for the artifact and they say you will get it by this date and on that day there's a surprise. So, <laughs> so, 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 and the reasons could be many, but uh, sometimes the reasons are that it's not perfect. It's not there where they want it to be. So I, my questions to uh, all three of you, I think different areas and different level of collaboration is that when do you feel your artwork is complete? Because there's nothing perfect. You can keep making it better every time, but at some point you're gonna have to stop. So when do you think that's the time and, and how do you make that decision? There's a deadline, if you're working on a deadline, you know, that's a hard, that's, you know, there's your specific time. Um, but that is a good question. Uh, yeah. um, I think, um, I mean, I think we all agree that we all come from being artists, I guess. It starts with being an artist and I think um, you wear so many hats at the same time. Mm -hmm. You're not just an artist. You pull so many things together. I mean, you, you're, you kind of, in my case, you're running the show. So you got the deadline. And if, if it involves 10 people, you're the first one to be asked and the last one to be asked about the work. So in between, then you're putting everything together. Um, in my case, I, I, I have to kind of really manage um, 
deadlines, fabrication, budgets, um, installing structure, structural engineers. Uh, it really, really depends on each project and how the scale of the project. But for some reason, I enjoy bringing so many people on, a, on, a, on one project. Like I enjoy this kind of like art production of building things and installing them and deinstalling them. And maybe that's also part of my me being in control. So it's like, okay, I'll be the first person to like run everything and put things together. Mm -hmm. I, I have a, I have that energy. I have this kind of fire energy to to make things happen. Mm -hmm. Like I find my ways. <laughs> I actually, I wanted to make a quick comment. Um, when you asked the question about how do you decide when to stop, because you can keep working on it and it will keep getting better, I think that's coming from your perspective in what you do. As an engineer, if you keep working on it, it gets better. But for artists, if you keep working on it, you can actually end up killing it. Yes, absolutely. So. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's a and, and that actually leads me to, to, to one question that I bet I know the answer to, but it's an interesting question. Have you ever worked on a project and never had the element of surprise? And if not, how do you think that would feel? I, I, I've always been surprised. So I'm... I'm I would think it would be horrible <laughs> if I wasn't. Is that my thing? Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm scratching. Catch you. Um, I mean, it's part of the process. So I don't know. I, I don't know what it would be called. You know, would it? It's part of. You know, it's an integral. It, it's part of the project, so I don't, it's part of the process. So I don't know how it, you know, would you still call it art? I don't know. Would you? I don't. I don't know. I mean, I think if it's it goes back to how we look at surprise. I mean, surprise could be anger, joy, uh, shock. Uh, you know, the the word surprise itself. Mm -hmm. It just makes you feel something different than from one state to another state. It's like you know, waking up and loving your work, and all of a sudden hating it and it's like, oh, I, I thought I actually liked it yesterday and th that's a surprise. I didn't <laughs> expect that. So I think it's your mindset again like, and state of where through the process mm -hmm. <laughs> was, if you want to define that as surprise, yes it is. I think, you know, even anger, joy or and I don't know, satisfaction. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I'm happy. I'm like, or, I, or completely like having it out there and say, I hate it. And it, that's a surprise. I've been working on it for a year. <laughs> I mean, I think that's true. I mean, that's yeah. not, a, you know, the. I don't think I'm approaching the work saying, oh, what is the surprise? You know, what am, what am I going to, you know, you're just inside of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. You know, you're just inside of the process. And it's, you know, going whichever way it is without, I don't know if I think about it in, t in those terms, mm -hmm. you know. I think there is when it, I don't think I think about it so much when I don't like something. Do you know what I mean? I think I, I does that mm -hmm. make sense? I'm saying when I hate something or when I'm not happy about it, I don't, I, I, it's interesting because I think I, I think about it more about when I discover, you know, when I discover something like, oh, or, 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 or resolve something or hit upon something accidentally. Um, 
To me, the, yeah, this, the, you gave a good list of them. I mean, discovery, uh, surprise is, is multifaceted. I mean, I was kind of fixing a little bit on Satori, you know, which is a surprise. But, uh, but uh, that's only one of many surprises. You've yeah. made a nice litany of some of them, I see. <laughs> and so I won't repeat them, but uh, uh, yeah. Um, I'm always surprised. Yeah, Miss Lee, you came up with a word that surprised me because it was on my mind, and that was a ritual. And I, I'm curious, and it's any or all that could answer it, do you have a ritual that you use as a catalyst to start your process, or do you, do you just mentally wander physically and mentally to see and look for these surprises? I think that's a good question. I think it's, it's, everything is, is, is different because I don't know. Sometimes I don't, I don't, every, every project is different, every approach is different, and I think that I don't, I don't know what that is, and I have to often do different things to find my way into it. So it's going to take on, uh, it's, that's such a good question, I'm trying to think how to, how to answer you know, the thing is, is, is making time. That's the first thing. So for me, it's, it's, a, it's, an, early, it's a, an early hour, you know, and just sort of committing to things. I don't want to get up early, you know. I don't want to do that, but I know that if I don't, that I'm not going to do anything, you know. So I think it's so, sort of starting there. And... Um, But when I say ritual, I mean, that could just, that could mean just ex tiring myself out <laughs> or emptying myself out, emptying um, the thoughts, the mental stuff out or physically so that I can just get to the work. Because there's a lot of just shit mm -hmm. in there, you know, just to empty out. Mm -hmm. that, that's something that I have to do every day because I, I have an over overactive mind. And I have to do things to exhaust myself so that I can get out of my way. And that's really hard for me. I, I don't think any of this is easy. I mean, it's not, I mean, for me. Um, but that's, and I'm talking about something very intimate, but that's something that I just, I just want to share that because. Uh, I call it the monkey mind. The monkey mind, yeah. 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 So. I think, um, I mean, a lot of what you were saying, I guess, uh, has to do with, with being aware of your mind and thoughts, of what could be the creative mind or the toxic mind. Yeah. And there is a lot of creativity that can come through toxic, the toxic mind as well. Uh, nothing, I don't think one is without the other. I mean, I don't want to say even, I don't think even, again, I'm not really judging it as positive or negative. There's something through both that can come out as a beautiful outcome of art or movie or poetry. Uh, so I think just being aware, you know, for me this would be my ritual. Because sometimes I can get carried away with my thoughts and it's not taking me somewhere I would want to. And then I could bring myself back. And so waking up, I think setting the intention would be a ritual as well. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I agree with you about the time. I mean, the, the, the privilege of, of, of being able to inhabit time in, in uh, an artist is a huge blessing. Um, and one of the things about Montalvo, uh, to get back to your question again, is, is uh, the, the ability to, to be able to uh, orchestrate time in, a, in, a in the most productive way possible. Um, uh, and that's a, a huge privilege and pleasure. So, um, uh, but I'm as a, a poet, to me, it's, 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 I'm very undisciplined. I, I wish I was more, I wish I was more, um, I mean, I have rituals, but I, I wish I was more disciplined. Uh, we all are. I wish, I wish yeah. that too. Yeah, I wish, <laughs> trust me, I think that's everyone. Every okay, art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, speaking okay, of okay. time, I want to say I waste a lot of time. Yeah, yeah. And I waste um, a lot of time. I wish, <laughs> yeah, that's um, part of it too. Um, time is one of those precious things that we have, and this is one of the things we do here. We give the gift of time. And we see artists up in their studios grappling with that time. People often ask, I wish I had the time to do this, and then we give them that time. And then they have to sit alone with their work <laughs> for that time. And it's, uh, and while I say this, I want to acknowledge some of the other artists in residence here who are uh, in the audience, Monica Lundy, wonderful painter who's uh, coming back from Italy and joining us. Yeah. Gregory Sale here, wave Gregory, who's just done an installation um, on Alcatraz that will be open through October. Please go and see that. Um, it's really very moving. And Jean Matusimi Ash here. Uh, hi, Jean. She's a, a wonderful photographer working on family history. And Judith Darrow from New Zealand. She comes from the future. Um, so we'll all break now, and um, we the, uh, we have our bar set up. Please join us out there. Um, and uh, there's also water. <laughs> Can we de-mic? <laughs> so thank you so much for coming. Yes, Jean. Yeah. When time is popping. When time is up. When time is up. Yes. Well, you know, we're coming to a place here where a lot of our artists are leaving in the next couple days. So for a lot of the artists here, time is up. And I noticed, you know, time accelerates when time is about to be up, right? It does accelerate yeah. over your time of life. If you have all the time in the world, you know, and then suddenly you don't. Yeah. And it accelerates. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for joining us tonight. Um, and thank you, thank you to the artists. It's such a privilege to be here with you. Please um, uh, take a look at the next open access. It will be March 21st. Um, and we will continue having these conversations with artists while they work.